A very good morning to you. I'm Howard Feldman. This is the Sunday Synthesis Podcast with me, Howard Feldman. You know, we've been doing this now for six months, in fact, just over six months, every Sunday without a break. And we always think that we're going to get to a stage where we won't have many questions from you, from our, from our viewers, but uh, each Sunday you send us the most challenging and the most interesting of questions. In the last week, we also had the opportunity to chat to Dr. Brian Abel. He's an immunologist living in San Francisco, and we took a detailed journey into where we are with regard to the vaccine. A lot of it I didn't understand and know a lot of it uh, you guys didn't understand. So uh, I've asked Anton during the course of this morning to also have a look at uh, that podcast. Well, in fact, he was very involved in it. He recorded it with us, but to maybe to give us a layperson summary around that. Uh, to begin, as we always do, Dr. Anton Myberg, good morning. How are we doing this August the 30th? Good morning, everybody. There are currently 25,187,544 cases worldwide with 847,039 deaths and 17 million cases resolved. The United States is up to 6.13 million cases and stabilizing a death rate of about 186,000. South Africa is sitting at 622,551 cases with 13,981 deaths and there were 2,418 new cases in the last 24 hours. We are now sixth in sixth position in the world odometer and we are trading just above Colombia and Mexico I think it's the first time we want to be lower than other countries in any of these statistical um, type of uh, workups. There are currently 2,969 patients admitted in Gauteng. That number has gone down dramatically. Last week, we were over 4,000, with 411 in ICU and 191 ventilated. So as you can see, the numbers are down dramatically, and there's a big shift downwards at the moment. Mm. At, at the peak, the hospital that you were working at had how many COVID wards and how many ICUs operating for, for COVID? So at the peak, we had about six normal wards with two ICU wards and one high care ward and one PUR ward. At the moment, we are down to two ICU wards, one PUR ward and one COVID ward. Wow. So that is, it is a dramatic, dramatic, dramatic difference. Dramatic. Uh, Very yeah. refreshing. It is very refreshing, and uh, especially you're on call this weekend, so uh, that makes it even better. Are you concerned that, that given the opening up um, of facilities, sports, uh, you know, even in a limited way, that, you're gonna, that we're going to see a full surge or a mini surge again? The concern is definitely there. We, we, we're very worried about the fact that we are going to see a second surge because people become relaxed, people become... Mm -hmm sort of, well, you know what, we've beaten this, and we've by no means beaten this virus. If you look anywhere in the world, if you look at Spain, if you look at anywhere in Europe, if you look at United States, if you look at Israel, they all thought they'd beaten this virus, and then they got their second surge. So we've got to maintain our non-pharmacological measures, which are the mask wearing, social distancing, washing of the hands, all those procedures in order to protect ourselves. We've got to make sure we don't overpopulate ourselves with people at this point in time. We don't have too many social arrangements. And if we do, we've got to do them within the parameters and the boundaries that have been set up for us. Okay, let's, before we get to the specific questions, and we have many, uh, would you give us a, spend a few moments talking about the vaccine, um, following the information and following the, the podcast that we shared last week? 
So in a nutshell, just to summarize it, because it was a very detailed podcast and there were a lot of uh, medical sort of analogies in there which were very difficult to understand. Basically, what we are saying is that we are now in phase three trials for the vaccine. That means that they are testing the vaccine on about 30,000 people. This is very different to Sputnik V, which is the Russian vaccine, where they have kind of bypassed this phase three trial and are going to be putting the vaccine out there, which is a very unsafe mechanism. Can I, can I just moment, stop you for a second? Yeah. Did you just make that up? Or is it really called Sputnik V? It's really called Sputnik V. So it's quite, a disastrous, it's quite a disastrous name if you consider that Sputnik V wasn't the greatest uh, space expedition e either. Well, that's you know? what I'm wondering. I mean, maybe they could have come uh, up with something different, but yeah. that's not really our... Well, that that just that answers the question, doesn't it? Perhaps. Yeah. So there are currently 203 trial vaccines with 26 clinical trials, and six of those are in phase three. And there are 316 overall treatments that have been sort of ratified for, for COVID-19. We must remember that the polio vaccine took 60 years to be produced. Last week, the World Health Organization came out with a statement that Africa has finally eradicated polio. So that's taken over 100 years to eradicate it. Um, it's, it's a major thing because, I mean, most people don't even know what polio is anymore, thank God. Mm -hmm. Now, if we remember... The, I took the a brand with a, with, a, with, a, with a horse on it. Uh, certain of our older generation will remember times when they actually used to wear garlic around their necks in order mm. to prevent them from getting polio. And that's Amazing. a true story. Um, the vaccine for COVID-19 for SARS-CoV-2, the virus genome was sequenced eight weeks after it was identified. And that's eight weeks, and you look at 60 years for polio. And that's why we're in such a rapid progression of this virus actually trying to find a vaccine for it and it, it being produced. The United States have, have underwritten $10 billion to try and produce a vaccine as quickly as possible and have started producing vaccine, even if they show it doesn't work yet, in order to meet up with the numbers that are going to be needed. There's a lot of political agendas to all of this. Mm -hmm. We know that. And it could be with the, the Trump and Biden and Putin and the whole war race, etc. But that's on its own merit. There are currently two trials in South Africa. The one is the CHADOX trial, which is an AstraZeneca trial which takes a weakened virus, which is not able to replicate from an adenovirus. And the other one is the Novavax, which is a protein subunit vaccine, which has been done with Prof Shabir Mahdi. So there, there are two vaccines in South Africa being worked out. They're trying them on a number of patients that are immune competent and some that are HIV um, patients that are on treatment as well. So there are very interesting times ahead. We are looking forward to getting a vaccine. It should be with us in the next six to 12 months, dependent on the American elections. Is it likely, in, in your view, that we'll actually see a number of different vaccines entering the market? And we might find that, well, South Africa, uh, because of AIDS or TB or, 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 or HIV, TB, etc., might be more suited towards one vaccine, whereas Europe might be another. That, that's actually a great question. I'll tell you why. Because if you look at the flu vaccine, you know, the mm. flu vaccine is modeled on the different types of strains you get from all over the world. So we wait before we get our flu vaccine to see what the strain was in the Northern Hemisphere. And then we sort of derivate and make a derivative of that for the Southern Hemisphere. So it might be sort of changed in a different way in different hemispheres, according to the season of the year, et cetera. But I think we'll know over time. At the moment though, as you say, there's, there's six in clinical phase three trials that are being worked up at the moment that we're hoping to come out soon. And it's a big competition for these companies because winner will take it all. 
Mm. What is your view on, on people participating in these vaccine trials? If one of your patients came to you, uh, what, what would your feeling be? The mixed feelings, I must say. If one of my patients came to you, there was a healthy person that had no comorbidities, I'd say go ahead with it. If you've got comorbidities and you've got other things, we don't know that if you have been given this vaccine, and you've got comorbidities, you might make an abnormal immune response to it in the future. So we don't know yet. So rather, rather if you're gonna go try the vaccine, make sure you're a healthy person with no comorbidities. Um, I'm very prone to trying and I think we need to do it. I think it's very important. And just to reiterate, baldness in your view is still a comorbidity. Yes, very, very much so. I don't think you've got many T cell receptors. In fact, bringing that up, um, and this is a, a kudos to the woman, women's bodies produce a stronger immune response to the SARS-CoV-2 virus than men's bodies because they are mounting a more robust T-cell activation response to this virus. That's quite interesting. That so is interesting. I guess that uh, the lack of hair shows that you, it just shows that you're not robust. Right, right, in, uh, in indeed. All right, and, and whilst we're speaking about that, there's also a lot of talk around the antibody testing that's, that's being rolled out quite extensively across, uh, across Johannesburg, certainly. Um, would you, you know, that, that I guess there's no harm in anybody well, participating. Well, it's also a very good question, and I'll tell you why, because if you ask me, am I going to get my antibodies tested, the answer is no. And why is the answer no? Because it gives you a false sense of security. Okay, so I'm going to get my antibodies tested and the antibody comes back as positive, let's say, please God, we would hope. Okay, mm, even mm. though I've had no symptoms, I would have been completely asymptomatic, but I have been exposed but to this virus for the last six months. Okay, yeah. mm. but in your mind and as a human being, you then start relaxing and thinking, well, you know, I've got the antibodies. Okay, so I don't have to wear my mask here and I don't have to do this here. And we just don't know what, what human nature is. So just be very careful if you're going to do the antibodies. Once again, it's not immune passport to say you can just go out there because even if you've had the virus, and yes, you may have antibodies to it, you can still pass on other aspects of the virus to other people. So it may not affect you, but it still can affect other people. So we'd like to know we've got antibodies. I think it would be amazing to know that. We don't know how long the antibodies last. We do know that the antibodies wane within two to three months. That is, they decrease in their functioning. And it's not checking your T cell response, which we've discussed before. The T cells, your natural killer cells, a different type of immunity with your adaptive and immune, uh, immunity or your naive immunity. So you've got to be very careful saying that once you've had antibodies, it doesn't mean you can just go out there and, and have parties and socialize and, and take things. It's very important mm -hmm. though, for, for surveillance monitoring and that you're doing in old age homes and that type of thing. And in somebody who you've had a patient, let's say that you've tested as negative, but clinically every other sign has been positive. Then three to four weeks down the line, if you do antibodies and they come back positive, at least you know you're on the right track and what you're dealing with. Mm. And uh, earlier this week, we also uh, chatted to you on my show to talk about the, the fact that we are now starting to see documented cases of reinfection. Can you please take us, anybody who might have missed that slot, please take us through that again, because I think that's extremely important. So, so the first documented case was in Hong Kong uh, of a patient that uh, uh, five months previous to that was diagnosed positive. They had his actual uh, SARS COVID virus in the lab. They did a genomic sequencing of the virus and they found out exactly which virus it was. Then the patient got better. And after a few months, he went overseas to Spain and he came back and he came back and he got sick again. They retested him and they found it was once again SARS-CoV-2, but it was a different strain 
of the virus. It wasn't a mutation, but it was a different strain having been in another country. So he actually was reinfected with a new type of SARS-CoV-2, and it does show that you can be reinfected, albeit we're hoping that the second infection will be much lighter because hopefully you've got this T-cell immunity and antibody type of memory cells that your body can fight this off a bit better. There's also been a number of cases in the Netherlands where this has been reported, about four or five cases. So we're going to start seeing it uh, come up more. It's not a cause for alarm, as I've said before, but it is something to think about and something just to keep at the back of your mind that if you had the infection, you can get it again. Mm. And just going back, uh, uh, Vivian wants to know, what are your thoughts on the headline that she saw saying, and, and, and I, of, of course, always worry about the headlines because they are uh, designed to make you read further clickbait, but uh, I don't know if this is right or not. She says there was a headline that said, children are silent spreaders of COVID-19. Uh, your thoughts on that? Because well, of course- It's not, it's not something we haven't said before. Yeah. We, you know, we, we know that children can spread it, um, they would be asymptomatic and mild. And that's why at stages we have closed schools down and we've done certain restrictions on them so we can make sure when there's a surge that no one's exposed. And that's mm -hmm. why at schools, children are kept in their bubbles. They've still got to wear masks. They've still got to wear visors, et cetera, if they are at high risk, et cetera. Most children just have to wear their masks. They've got to keep social distancing. They've got to social distance at break. In fact, an article came out in the last week about from the World Health Organization that children under the age of five don't have to wear masks. Now, that's a very, I'm not so happy with that statement because the benefits say, of what, what, wearing what masks should be weighed against the potential harm associated with wearing masks, including the feasibility and the discomfort. And most of our kids at the age of five are happy to wear masks. They're managing to wear masks. It's safer for them to wear masks. Obviously, kids under the age of three, higher choking risk, different story, rather put them in visors, it's more, it's preferable. But kids at the age of five should be wearing masks. As far as we're concerned, it's just better because there's a lot of inter sort of home transfer. If you've got an 11 year old brother who's at school and you're at school yeah. as a five year old, you know, we don't know what's transmitting between you, so rather be safe. So would you say, would you agree with the following? Zero to three, nothing. You don't wear anything. Zero to three, three you do not need a mask, yeah. Three to five, try wear a visor. Um, it's, it's preferable to wear a visor three to five. If they can wear a mask, great. Um, you know, it's, it's just even, it's far better than wearing a visor. You know, the visors aren't 100% safer, but there's different types of visors. You can get hoodie visors, which come over their head as a cap type thing, much easier. Remember, you've got to protect everybody and it's about protection of people. It's not only about the fact that you want people to be comfortable. What's so interesting is the kids get used to these things, you know, so even young Very kids look around and uh, uh, I was looking at a little kid yesterday and uh, a two-year-old looking at everybody, no, no comment about the fact that everybody was walking around with masks. They, this has just become, for them, it's absolute, It's not the new normal, it is normal. So it's actually, normal. It's it's it might be easier uh, yeah. to adapt towards this. You can train your kids to, to wear masks mm -hmm. and they have been wearing masks anyway up to this time, so I don't think we should mm -hmm. change it. Yeah, yeah, interesting indeed. Uh, Carla wants to know, do we have uh, uh, uh available and uh, is it being used successfully? So we do have Toclizumab available. It's called Tocilizumab and it's a monoclonal antibody. It's used against something called interleukin-6 and that's found in your hyperinflammatory response or your cytokine response. We do use it sort of as 
a last ditch effort if we basically seeing that the patient is in extreme trouble, if they need to be ventilated, if they've got a high, uh, what we call CRP, a high D-dharma, a high ferritin, um, if they've got a high interleukin-6 level, we're using that together with corticosteroids such as dexamethasone or other corticosteroids, together with oxygen, together with anticoagulation, and together with remdesivir. So it is part of our armamentarium of treatment that we are using, and uh, it's a very effective drug, but it's got major side effects as well. Shirley wants to know uh, if one does a test, and this is, she says she writes from Israel, so she's talking about the regulations there. She says if one does a test about a week after being exposed to a COVID carrier and the result is negative, why does one still have to stay in isolation for the full 14 days? Because albeit that you could be asymptomatic, you could still produce or shed virus at a later stage, and it's just far safer to keep in quarantine for that period of time to make sure you cannot pass virus onto anybody else. Hmm. Okay, and Peter wants to know, is the state fudging the numbers? Reported today that COVID-19 recovery is 86%. That might mean anything. Do 14% die? We know that that's not correct. When, uh, uh, what are the real risks of death if one contracts COVID-19? So 86% recovery means that 86% that of the population who have got the virus have recovered. The truth of the matter is, how do they actually work that out? I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, who, who knows? It could be a, a political, mm -hmm. it could be epidemiological. Mm -hmm. There's a whole way that they are working these numbers out. But it doesn't mean that then 14% of people have died. It means that the 14% of cases are still active. Some are in hospital, some are not in hospital. Um, what is the second part of the question? Um, the, what are the real risks of death? Well, we, we, we've said before, there's 5% are become critical that land up in ICU, and those 5% are the ones that are in trouble of dying. And it could mm -hmm. be for a number of reasons. It could be from multi-organ failure. It could be from brainstem involvement. It could be from cardiac involvement and respiratory involvement. So there's multiple reasons why they do die in ICU and from this disease. Mm -hmm. uh, Mandy says schools are back. Uh, places of worship are back. And... Uh, and uh, those and, and there are prayer services happening in homes. Uh, people are sharing meals. They are walking around with no masks. The other day I was walking out of a store when a lady not wearing a mask was walking towards the entrance of that shop. The man at the door said, where is your mask? And she replies, it's in the car. I just want to get one thing. I'll be quick. Uh, she wasn't allowed into the store. But, uh, but surely if this is the behavior, we can expect another wave. Well, that's completely correct. I mean, we, we've still got to maintain all the requirements that we've had for the last few weeks, few months, because if we don't do this, then we are going to have a major surge. I think, I think what's important to know is if everybody could just look around them and see how relaxed we are at the moment, how many weeks down we are, that from where we were to where we are now, we want this to continue. You know, we want to be able to say that on Rosh Hashanah, first night, please God, that we can actually sit with part of our family and sit and have a meal with them. If mm. we carry on in this vein, the answer is definitively yes. But if we get a second surge in the next two weeks, then we're not going to be able to go to shul. We're not going to be able to have meals with part of our family. We're not going to be able to interact. And we're going to be cutting our nose despite our faces. And so we've got to be careful. We have to have to be careful. All right. And uh, um, Karen says, if I've had swine flu really badly, is there any way that I could have built up some immunity to COVID? So 
it's unlikely because they're two different viruses. There is a theory that says that if you have different types of vaccines throughout your life, you do, you do build a better immune response. Now, you've trained your immunity and your immune response to react to different viruses. So that's a potential. But H1N1 or any of the other types of avian influenzas or the H1 influenzas, those are not going to protect you per se from this coronavirus. And let's just talk about uh, a few people asking about, uh, and this is specifically for our Jewish uh, Jewish viewers, but but it applies to 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 everybody. Um, it is the the Jewish festivals coming up. It's a, it's quite a an emotive time. People would like to be back um, in in at synagogues, but again, as I say, that applies to churches, mosques, etc. What are, Zilla wants to know, what is your advice regarding people over 60 going to the synagogue? Um, uh, also, what about resuming playing cards, perhaps outdoors with masks? In other words, just trying to get back to some form of life. Look, people over the age of 60 with comorbidities are, are a big problem. We don't want to affect them. We don't want them getting sick. You know, the virus is still out there, once again. It, we haven't beaten the virus. And we're mm. very worried about the second surge. There were still over 2,400 cases in the last 24 hours. There's still a number of deaths. It's still happening. We do want people to start getting back to some social norms, but you've got to be very careful. You know, playing cards, you can't uh, keep a distance of more than one and a half meters from each other. If you are playing outside. And, you hand, and you're handing things to and each other. That's it. And you keep on, and you're going to be eating, and you're going to be drinking. So it's very, diff very difficult. Doing things outside, like... like seeing, a, let's say, friends outside, you know, if you're all wearing your mask and you're all one and a half meters outside and you're a very small group, that's reasonable. That's not unreasonable at this point in time. And I think we can manage that. I think that's okay. But you've got to do it within the boundaries and the framework of what we've been mm. speaking about. I must say that we did that, that yesterday. We sat on the driveway probably four or five meters um, apart. There was no shared food. Um, it was just uh, uh, the opportunity to just sit and, and have a conversation outdoors, as I say, about maybe even more than five meters apart. And, and, and it really did make a big difference mentally, emotionally. I, th I think that I think we, it's important provided you can do it in a way. And you've got to be strict because it's so easy just, just to, to say, well, you know, let me just run inside and, 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 and get some popcorn. Uh, things, it's, uh, one has to be very disciplined. Always about food. Always yes. About did you find that as well? Yes. All right. <laughs> well, at least I didn't make it about alcohol, um, but that is, uh, you know. Um, Debbie says, my husband was diagnosed with bladder cancer during the lockdown and is now undergoing chemotherapy. We've got three older children all living at home, and uh, between us all, we've literally been at home for the last five months, not seeing any of our family or friends, I, as I live in fear of one of us getting COVID and passing it on to my husband. As life is returning, to uh, almost normal around us. What advice can Dr. Marburg give us? Is it necessary for me to still be so neurotic? So I think you've got to speak to your urologist and your oncologist and discuss what stage of, of cancer you're dealing with, what type of immune suppressing chemotherapy you are getting, where are they in the stage, what is their bloods like, etc. And they can help you understand if you can still remain neurotic, or, mm. which I don't think is neurotic. I think it's just being careful. I think you've got to be very careful to call yourself neurotic when you yeah, try and I was going to say, I mean, I, I wouldn't pathologize that, surely. That yeah. sounds sensible. I think, I think what you've done is 100% correct, but mm. there might be a time where your oncologist slash neurologist says it's actually okay now for your husband to be exposed to other people 
as long as they fulfill all the requirements. So just, mm. I think, speak to them. You'll get a better idea where they're at. Yeah, and get proper guidance there. Um, um, Alan says, a point of interest, yesterday on my way to work in Santon, I passed six groups of runners, three groups of walkers, no masks worn. I must be missing something as the virus is still out there. And this is still um, in all its devastating glory. Now, what was interesting is Tanya responds um, to, to, to that message and says, um, it's, I find it very hard to run with a mask. So I run at about 5.30 in the morning or 11, 11 p.m., 11 at night in order to avoid bumping into anyone because I find it impossible to run with, with a mask. What's your, your thoughts about no, I think well done to Tanya because she's not one of those people that are going to say, well, I can't run with a mask. I'm just going to run with everybody else. So what she's done is brilliant. I do think it's still extremely important if you are running in a group, which is still not advisable, but if you are run one and a half meters apart from each other and you have to wear masks, we have to keep mm -hmm. ourselves covered, wear masks or wear a buff. So it's still very important. It's selfish not to because you're spreading the virus, especially with cyclists as well and with runners. It's very important. What do you think about things like, I mean, we've spoken about gyms. I'm not going to go back into that. But a lot of people are asking about extra, extra murals for their kids, boxing, all of this type of thing. Well, um, boxing is very high impact and it's involved. It's very difficult to do boxing with a mask and uh, with a coach, et cetera. I wouldn't advise boxing at this point in time, but I would advise that you could play, let's say tennis, I mean, outside, as long as you've got, um, you've got a spray the whole time and you're wearing a mask and you spray your hands in, in between things, tennis or, or table tennis, those things are okay, as long as you keep on spraying. Things like volleyball, netball and boxing, I wouldn't advise right now. There's a Jewish custom uh, that before the festival, of Rosh Hashanah, the new year, men go to the mikvah and immerse themselves. Leon wants to know, do you think it's still safe to do that this year or should it rather be avoided? It is a place of, of, of overcrowding. Yeah, I would avoid it because there's no way you can stop that, that interaction. I mean, you cannot stop that more than one and a half meters between people. You, you need a lot, there's a lot of people going into one place, so I would avoid it. So for this year, just- uh, just, just, just swimming pool. Right, exactly. Ricky wants to know, as a teacher, how concerned should I be of getting the virus if a child needs attention or a hug after they fall, etc.? Um, I can't give them what they need. It's my job. Um, are we especially at risk? It's so hard. This it is. You know, it's an emotional thing. It's not. It's not a rational thing because it's emotional. You know, rationally that you can't. There's no way that you should mm. be giving a child the hug. Okay, because you don't know if you've got something or the child got something. You pass on it. So you you just can't do it rationally but emotionally you're between a rock and a hard place so mm -hmm. the answer is you shouldn't be hugging them you shouldn't be picking up and that's the whole risk of sending a child a young child back to school you've got to set these parameters up in place before and if you do have to well you, you've got to be careful you've got to spray afterwards you've got to wash you've got to make sure everyone's wearing masks and then once again if, if it's a young child and they're not wearing a mask they're not wearing a visor then it complicates matters further yeah you're putting yourself they're charging you have to quarantine afterwards yeah, yeah. Stacy says, uh, it's probably not even worth asking, but my son lives in Manchester in the United Kingdom. He booked in January to be here in December. I haven't seen him now for one and a half years. He still has faith that he'll be able to come here. He is a South African British citizen, uh, but resides there. Yes, my heart is broken. What is the opinion of international travel uh, resuming? Look, I think we're still in lockdown. We're still in a pandemic. Um, we're waiting to hear from the government what's going to happen on the 15th of, of, of September, where we're going. 
So I think watch the space. Within the next month, we'll have an answer to that definitively from the government and from the actual virus statistics. Yeah, and Stacey, just to tell you that that uh, I spoke to somebody that just returned from overseas. They went for their child's wedding, and uh, the process was was a very decent one. They they've come back. They've gone into quarantine. Um, I, I I am a little bit hopeful that uh, that provided we continue the way in which we are behaving, and I think that's the critical thing is that is that we we careful, and if we continue that, I'm sure that there is a chance. That, um, that, that we'll be able to, to resume some form of travel uh, in December. Uh, Michelle wanted to know about uh, interprovincial travel. I just want to go to that question. Um, she asks about uh, traveling to, to see family in Bloom, for example. Is it, uh, is, it, is, it, uh, is it safe? to be able to go and see family, obviously. Well, there's no difference there. at this point in time, going to see family around the corner, seeing family in bloom. Interprovincial inter travel is allowed right now. So you just gotta be careful and fulfill every sort of, you've got to tick all the boxes, make sure you wear your mask, make sure you wash hands, social distancing. You know, if you haven't seen your family for a long time, you're inclined to run up and want to hug them and kiss them, but you've got to avoid that. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, Helen says the same question as we've been asked a lot of times, and it just seems so counterintuitive uh, as to what the answer is. But my Look, daughter's we, we, family... We're desperate. We're all desperate. From the virus. We all want to be with our no, family. She says her family's recovered from COVID. Yeah, yeah. But uh, your, your view is uh, just be as careful uh, as possible. I want to get to Linton Lurie's question. Um, he says... Uh, um, uh, well done for the podcast. Although the Chief Rabbi's recommendation is for sure and then going to start in the open air limited to maximum 15 people, I'm concerned as I'm aware of uh, schools that, for example, are having 30 people in a medium-sized medium um, hall. Uh, what is your view of, of uh, you know, greater numbers indoors, etc.? But be very careful of greater numbers indoors. Outdoors is preferable for this type of thing. And once again, the, the rules have been set down by Professor Ephraim Kramer. They are extremely strict, they're extremely stringent, and they'll there for a reason because they work. And if we follow them, we can stop the spread in religious gatherings, which is the biggest area where it can spread. One other problem with having a large amount mm -hmm. of people is not at the actual service, but when you leave the service, people tend to congregate together. And that's a big problem as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, here's an, a, an anonymous question. Um, uh, our helper who lives on our premises has been with us under lockdown since March and has hardly been out uh, with exception of a few trips to the bank or pharmacy, as well as a recent scheduled visit to the, the Hillbrook Clinic for a checkup. On all these occasions, my wife took and fetched her. I note that lately she appears fairly depressed. She's very religious Christian and has made up her mind and is determined to go to church, uh, which has recently opened. Uh, she'll apparently travel with a friend who is a driver by profession in his own car, and he will bring her back. A church apparently has a capacity of 8,000 people, has an upstairs and downstairs, but there'll be different um, different intervals of, of, of services. I'm over 60 with multiple risk factors and have tried to specifically minimize any unnecessary external contact both for myself and the people in my household. Um, we have elected not to go back to synagogue. To date, my children have not returned to school and are doing online learning. Not that uh, I really have much choice at this stage, but should I have instructed her 
not to go or persuaded her not to. If she does go, what is the um, additional uh, care that she should be taken? Sure, yeah, that, that's that a tough one. Take. Because, you know, you can't say it's okay for you to go to a synagogue, even though they're not going, and then you can't let your helper go mm -hmm. to a church service. But you've got to understand what is happening at that church service. So, yes, it's got a capacity of 8,000 people, but how many people are actually meeting together in one area? What are their social distancing cues? What are they doing? If you can find all of those things and get a better answer, then maybe we'll have a better idea of what you can do forward. I would be very nervous about it, especially because you've been so careful and you just don't know. And I would say that rather quarantine them than when they come back because you're just looking for trouble. Mm. But, but, but let's look at it this way. I mean, if I've got, um, I've got, as you can know, I've got balding as, as, as a comorbidity. Your advice to me so far is, is not to go to synagogue over, over the festivals. Yeah, it's not, not just because of your balding. Okay? There's, there's more comorbidities we're talking about there. Okay. Razor sharp wit is not a comorbidity. <laughs> Never has been. Anyway, let's get back to that. But my family, my family will be going to, 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 to synagogue over the period, provided obviously it is okay, safe. Before you even go down that line, we know what's happening at the synagogues at the moment. We know how well structured it is. We know what they're doing and how they're doing it to prevent any issues. So if you know how the framework of it works, then you're happy with it. All I'm saying is if you need to know how the framework of other, other sort of religious gatherings work, if they fulfill the same sort of criteria that we're fulfilling at the synagogues, then there's no issue at all. No issue right. at all. Right. right. So you'd be comfortable, let's say in this case, for my family to go uh, because they, they, they aren't bald, uh, but, but, but for me not to. So there, there, there is a balance that we can achieve provided we, we, we just follow um, the rules. Of, of just follow the rules. Mm. Absolutely. I, I think that answers a lot of people's questions. And I think, uh, and I think I know that this time is very, very confusing. In fact, probably more so than, than in other times when, when it's either complete lockdown or it's completely open. I think the advice is just look at your own circumstances, be careful, know that it's still out there, but try to have a little bit more um, of a life than, than we have had until now. Yeah, I agree. I think we, we've got to just sum it up and say the infections are down dramatically. People are, for the first time in months, actually happy and actually able to breathe a bit. Okay? Mm -hmm. The weather is good. That helps as well. The yeah. new soccer season is about to start. I mean, that's just the best news of it all. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. But I think we've got to end up and say laughter is the best medicine unless you are diabetic. Then insulin comes pretty high up on that <laughs> So just be careful, look after yourself, follow the rules, don't tend to go off the actual the lane that you've been on the whole time, wear your masks, social distance, public distance, wash your hands, just be careful and take care of each other. Absolutely. Sound, sensible advice. I'm Howard Feldman. This is the Synthesis Sunday podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. That means you'll get alerts when these and all other interesting podcasts are available and uh, you won't miss any of them. Have a safe week. Have a good week. Be healthy, be happy, and uh, be, uh, be, as best, be as good as you can be. I'm Howard Feldman. Have a great one.